the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Um, last week, if you were here, we spoke, uh, we walked through the stories that Jesus told about persistence. Uh, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Um, here we are persisting. But seriously, uh, today we're moving on. We've only got two more of these in the series called Stories Like That. We've only got this week and next week, and then we're moving on to some other stuff this fall. And I'm excited about all of it. Uh, Today we're talking about all the things Jesus said about counting the cost. A lot of people use that phrase in different ways. For example, Catherine Daugherty says, Love, 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 never counting the cost. And for what she means by that, it actually harmonizes pretty well with what Jesus says to count the cost. Last week, we, we remembered together that when we focus on our own needs and our own desires, nobody actually gets their needs or their desires met. It doesn't go well for anybody. That true love, the kind of love Jesus demonstrated and calls us to, is actually always focused on God and on others. That everybody loses when we don't. And so when we're counting the cost in this sense, when we're always trying to figure out, well, what's in it for me? We've actually just lost all chance of actually accomplishing anything. So even though she's using the phrase differently, she's harmonizing with Jesus. St. Ignatius does the same thing when he prays. Teach us to give and not to count the cost. Again, if we only give when we're trying to see what it's going to come back for us, if we're trying to, how is this investment in God's kingdom going to come back to me? We're missing the whole point. And so that really harmonizes with what Jesus says. We give out of gratitude and out of trust. It's an act of worship when we give. Even when we help others. Sometimes I think especially when we give to help others outside of church. We are actually worshiping God. And so as you give uh, today, as you give later on, maybe today online or whenever, as you give throughout the week, as you share, as you choose how to use the money God has given you, I always encourage you to, to do that as an act of worship, an act of trust. Because here's how Jesus uses the phrase counting the cost. He used it in an absolute way. And his stories about counting the cost are not about being just a little bit more loving, like Catherine Doherty said, or about being just a little more generous, like St. Ignatius prayed about. When Jesus says to count the cost, he means to understand that when we give ourselves to God, when we join our king, his kingdom, we give up everything. Everything belongs to Jesus from that point on. And if we don't get that, or if we try to join his kingdom with any less of a commitment than that, we're wasting our time. Here's some of the stories he told. You probably remember some of these. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Can you imagine what an idiot that guy looked like to everybody around him? How angry his family must have been? How crazy his friends must have thought he was? And of course, this is a story Jesus made up. But if this actually had happened in real life, can you imagine how, how, how nonsensical it looks to trade everything in this life for something else? But that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. He goes on, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had 
and bought it. The exact same point. Once again, let's say this out loud together, these four words. Everything belongs to Jesus. It really does, whether we like it or not. But to join his kingdom is to fully embrace that. To join his kingdom is to absolutely surrender everything. All of you, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. All your resources, all your opportunities, all your learned skills, all your natural born God-given talents, everything. It all belongs to Jesus. And when Jesus says to count the cost, he's making sure that we are surrendering all of that. He's making sure that we get it, that we are supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself because your resources aren't yours anymore. They belong to Jesus and they belong to your neighbor just as much as they belong to you. And that flies in the face of not only American culture, but just about every culture there's ever been. We always want to look out for number one. We always want to protect ourselves. We always want to make sure that we have what we need, what we want most. But Jesus says, no, that's just really not how it works. And Jesus just doesn't care what culture says. Any culture, ever. As a leader, as somebody who really cares about people, one of the things we, we try to do is see what works and what doesn't. And try to lean into the things that seem to be working and try to back off on things that don't because we want to accomplish goals. This makes sense to you guys, right? Does that, that make sense? Anybody else do this same strategy as a parent, as a teacher, as a, a job person, anything? I'm, there's only five of you? Seriously, anybody else use the same strategy? It's good strategy. But sometimes Jesus himself seems to fly in the face of that. This is one of those. Luke 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Is he trying to get rid of them? That's crazy talk. What does he mean by that? And I'm sure you've heard this before. I'm sure somewhere along the line you've heard this very hard saying of Jesus among several others. Where it sounds like he's actually telling us to hate people or to be violent. We know better. Right? You all know better. But when it comes to how much you love Jesus and how much you love someone else, when it comes down to which one are you going to choose? Am I going to stay in this sinful relationship or am I going to give everything to Jesus? Am I going to hold on to this wealth, this job, this prestige, this whatever else, or am I going to give everything to Jesus? How we treat everything but Jesus should actually look like hate in comparison. He's not talking about violently opposing the people that we love. He's saying, if it comes down to me or anyone else, you better choose me. Count the cost before you join me. That's exactly what I demand. He goes on, makes it a little bit clearer using, once again, stories. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation 
and you are not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. There's some confusing things in the Bible. This is actually not one of them. It's just hard. You might be feeling this morning like Mark Twain who said this. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. (laughs) It's true. There was a movie, speaking of great stories, one of my favorites from way back in the day, 1999, I believe. Uh, There was a movie called Instinct. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the idea is Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is an up-and-coming psychiatrist who's got all this ambition, and he, he pulls all the strings so he can treat Anthony Hopkins' character, who has um, been living with gorillas for a long time. It's kind of a weird story, but he, he hasn't spoken since he's come back into civilization, and he, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. is going to cure him, and he, he just feels like he is, he is the top dog, and he keeps talking to this guy, you better, you better start coming around, you better start talking, you better start getting, I know you can hear me, I know you understand, I'm the best there is, blah, 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 and then there's this pivotal scene in the story, it's, it's, it's one of the ones that just sticks in my heart and soul every time, because it's such a powerful depiction of what I'm about to tell you. But just for the first time, Anthony Hopkins, he just turns around in a split second. Cuba Gooding Jr. doesn't even know what hit him. And he literally just completely takes control of him, puts some tape over his mouth, throws some paper on, on a desk, hands him a crayon and says, you have three choices. If you get this wrong, I'm going to kill you. If you get it right, you'll live. He goes, what did I just take from you? What did I just take from you? So Cuba Gooding Jr. writes out, control. And Anthony Hopkins grabs the paper, crumples up, throws it, and he goes, that's one, that's one. No, that's not what I took from you. Got two more choices. What What did I take from you? And he writes out, my freedom. He says, nope, you got one more choice. And Anthony Hopkins writes out, my illusions. And he kisses him on the cheek and lets him go. He says, yeah, that's right. You were never in control in the first place. Does that make sense to you guys? That's the thing. When we count the cost and we surrender everything to Jesus, we're actually giving up something we never had. We never owned it in the first place. We are not in control. We think we are. We think it's our life. We think it's our rights. We think it's our money. We think it's our whatever. But it all belonged to Jesus in the first place. 
The people who count the cost and throw it all at the feet of Jesus are just the people who are sane enough to realize that and embrace that in this life and prepare for the life to come. We trade our illusions for the truth. That's what it means when we do this. We submit to his control. Would you say this out loud with me? We must submit to his control. We must submit to his control. This, this actually, I'm wrestling with this right now. I'm, I'm telling you, that the last several weeks at camp and, and even this morning, I, I'm wrestling with this because I know, I've seen, I've tasted, I know that God loves to answer the prayers of his people. I know he's powerful and I know he's good. And I know that he knows everything and I know he can do anything. But I also know in my experience and in the scriptures themselves that he rarely answers our prayers the way we want him to. He rarely answers our prayers exactly the way we pray them. Because we're not in control. He is. Am I the only person who notices this? He knows what is best for us, and we don't. And he's in control. And sometimes, the second we pray for something, an undeniable miracle happens. I've seen this. I know it. I've, I've felt it. I've seen it countless times. And sometimes I've seen him answer in ways that have nothing to do with my timetable, my dreams, my ideas whatsoever. But looking back, I can always tell that somehow or another, he had it under control. Somehow or another, he knew what he was doing, even though I didn't. One of my most common prayers these days is I'll just take my doubts, my fears, whatever it is that I'm going to God with that time. And I say, I know that if one of us is wrong, it's me. But you got to show me what you're up to. Please show me what you're up to. I submit to it regardless. But can, you, can I at least know what I'm submitting to? I pray that more than I've ever prayed. Prayed and prayed. There's a good word. I prayed it. But truly wise people learn to submit to God, no matter the cost, no matter what they think or feel, because they know that he is in control. Whether it looks like it, whether it feels like it, they get it that this is the reality that we all have to face. Here's another great story Jesus told about reality. It's another one of those weird ones, one of those harder to understand ones. But at its heart, it's actually pretty simple. In Luke 16, Jesus told his disciples. Note, I think it's significant that sometimes it tells us who he told it to. I'm not always sure what the significance is. But sometimes he tells a story to the Pharisees or to all of the crowds following him. Sometimes he tells a story specifically just to the twelve. This is one of those. But, but, but. Let's walk through it together. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Now notice a couple things before we go any further. This rich man is in total control of this situation. He's already made his decision. He's wanting a report of this guy. He wants him to own up to whatever he's done wrong or defend himself or try. But he's already fired. Does, it, does everybody get that? It's already done. This guy, this, this manager guy, right or wrong, has, is not in control. The rich man who hired him and is firing him is in control. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. 
I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. See, what he does is he accepts reality. He doesn't like it. He probably would like to defend himself or ask for forgiveness or somehow keep that job. But he knows that that ship sailed. It's done. He's not in control. So what he does next is in a desperate attempt to deal with that, that he is not in control. He's got to prepare for what's about to come next. And so he does. And this guy isn't a good guy. Let's not pretend that this is a good guy. I've actually heard people and read uh, articles and, and devotionals based on this same parable. And they try to justify this guy's actions. Sometimes the means are uh, justify the end. Me, sorry. Sometimes the ends justify the means. Sometimes maybe God's okay with us lying. Does that sound right to you guys? No, it's not. A, no. We're not, it's not okay. This is another bad guy. This is not one of those stories Jesus tells where everybody in the story is actually a bad guy. Nobody really represents God or us. He's trying to make a point that's bigger than the details of this story. Are you with me? So here's what this guy does. He goes to all the creditors of his former master. He's got one day at work left. And he goes to each one of them and drastically reduces what they owe his master. He uses his last day with authority over that kind of thing. He, he's, he actually cuts some of their, what, their debts in half. Just drastically reduces what they owe him. And so then the next day he is fired. Just like he knew he was already going to be. There wasn't any choice in that. But he had some friends. He had some buddies. Does that make sense? And Jesus continues. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. Note, note again, there's still, there, nobody's really a good guy in this. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now Jesus starts talking directly to the disciples. Here's kind of a moral of the story starting to happen. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Which is kind of a fancy way of saying it all belongs to Jesus. It's not your money. It's not your stuff. You have to accept the reality that this is a very short little life that we're living here. And we're getting ready for eternity. And the only choices that we make that actually really matter in this life are the ones that affect eternity. Are you with me in this? We face that reality and we make our choices accordingly. The more that we put all of our eggs in the basket of this life, the more we're doomed to fail because this life is only a small dot on a long, long, endless line of eternity. We've got to act in that direction. Jesus goes on and he makes it a little bit clearer. He says, for how you handle a little is how you handle much. And that applies to money here. He's saying, you know, if God's going to trust you with a little money and you squander that on yourself, and then you, he tr he, he's probably not going to squander a whole bunch of money on you, right? But it also has to do with just our life. It's every part of us. It's counting the cost of all of us because he's given us this little life. How we handle this life is probably how we're going to handle eternity. And he leaves that choice up to us. And he says this, 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This next story you've probably heard too. It's not a story Jesus made up. It's something that actually happened in his life. It's a historical story. The story of the rich, young ruler. This guy came to Jesus and he, he, he actually was a pretty good guy. Pretty successful, pretty respected. And he had kept all the commandments. When Jesus asked him, this guy was religiously a pretty good guy. When Jesus heard this, Luke 18, 22, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And when he said this, he became very sad. Because he was very wealthy. He had a lot to lose. Not near as much as he thought he did. It really belonged to Jesus in the first place. But he didn't get it. And this guy walked away. We'll come back to him in just a second. First, as we've done every time in these last couple minutes, we're going to go back to Tolkien for a second. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and the other Inklings, they weren't exactly paupers. But one of the reasons that we're still quoting them and talking about them today is because they were not focused on the next big blockbuster movie or the next big blockbuster best-selling book. They weren't, try, they weren't in it for the money. They were trying to create timeless classics. They were trying to create works of art that told the story, the actual good news, as well as great stories in and of themselves. They were in there to glorify God, even the way they wrote dictionaries and other kinds of really intellectual books and theological books about all these different things. They were were 100% there. We're not going to be quoting Twilight 50 years from now. That was a huge bestseller, but nobody's going to be trying to go, oh, man, that was so profound. Do you see the truth in that? Do you see the gospel in that? Nobody's going to see that. That was because they were intentionally focused on that. And in the character Frodo, you see something that happens to all of us. Frodo didn't get the ring because he deserved it. He didn't get the ring because he'd earned it. He wasn't the ring bearer in charge of taking it to where it needed to be destroyed because he was the best there was in all the land. It's because his uncle had found it in a cave and left it to him. It just was. But what he chose to do was face what he had been given. He chose to face reality. He chose to take the good advice of Gandalf. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. Are you ready? Are you ready to count the cost this morning? I hope so. Jesus consistently spoke of wealth actually as a burden, not a blessing. Sometimes we get that backwards here in America especially. But every blessing that we get is actually a responsibility and a tool. It's not evil in and of itself. It's not that money 
or responsibility or fame or any other thing that we might see as a real big blessing or a thing that we have to hold on to. It's not that those things are evil. It's that they are there to be used for the kingdom. They're there to be used for uh, eternity, for eternal purposes. They already belong to Jesus. He's entrusted you with that. And if you happen to be somebody this morning that has a lot of material things, wisdom, or, 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 and, and you're good at making money, and you've, get, you've got land, and you've got resources, praise God. There, there's nothing evil about that. There's nothing wrong about that. I just hope that you, just like the rest of us, understand that that is a tool that God has given you. That is a responsibility that he has given you. That is a blessing he has given you so that you can bless others. And those of you who feel like you don't have hardly anything, and all of us somewhere in the middle of the in-between, those two extremes, I promise you that God has given every single one of us stuff that he wants us to use to build his kingdom. He's given every single one of us stuff to do in this life that affects eternity. Every single one of us. Our job is to figure out what we're going to do with what we've been given, the time we've been given, the resources we've been given. To remember with every single day that we live, every moment that we live, that everything we have belongs to Jesus. We submit to his control. That rich man walked away, but his disciples followed him. They stayed with him that day. And here's what Jesus said to them. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. That's why Jesus also said things like, the enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that you might have life, life to the full. That's why his parting words were not, hey, hope you, hope you guys enjoy life. I'll see you someday in heaven. Hope you stay comfortable. Hope you stay safe. Hope you stay healthy. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And I will be with you even to the end of the age. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Can I pause there for a second? You might know what that means. Here's what it means. This is all we got is today. Yesterday's done. It's spent. What we do today can affect tomorrow, but we're not there yet. We have no real control over tomorrow. We don't know what anybody else in the world or God or even ourselves for sure are going to do tomorrow. You know when you make your choices? You know when you actually have any control at all that's not an illusion? It's today. How you choose to do the things that God, use the things God has given you. How you choose to respond to the things around you. Those are the choices you make and they only happen today. Every single today in your life is the only day you have anything to do with how things come out at all. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need to encourage each other. That's why we need to remind each other. That's why we need to be faithful in this. Again, Hebrews 3. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. In Acts, we see not only did they come to Christ, but their whole lives were transformed. That early church that's modeled in Acts chapter 2, it's, it, it, I'm not sure we'll ever, we have a different culture, we have everything different. I'm not sure we'll ever look exactly like that, but we've got to keep coming back to that family, that church, that team that was completely different than anything anybody had ever seen before. They made sure that everybody had what they needed. They shared their resources, physical and spiritual. And they made sure that everybody, and God blessed them and added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is where we end today. This is where the challenge happens. Would you say this out loud with me? Let's team up and play to win. Let's say, let's say that together. Ready? Let's team up and play to win. We already know what the winning team is, y'all. There's nothing we can do about that. You either join the winning team or you go down as the underdog that whoever's rooting for him is still going to lose. There's only one winner in this. It's God himself. We choose his team or we don't. And his dream is that we spend this life preparing for eternity. He wants us to do and to sacrifice whatever it takes to succeed in his plans. He's designed us to work together in that. Let me say that again. He's designed us to work together in that. Let me say that one more time. He's designed us to work together in that. And that's why we're teaming up more than ever before. This morning, as always, we're going to sing a song and invite you to make any kind of a choice that God is asking you to make. If it needs to be public, we ask you to come forward and, and, and help us celebrate and help you through that. We would love to welcome someone to, to be baptized. In fact, I already know one of the kids that's going to get baptized today. Whoever's going to get her, you can go get her right now. We're, we're at that spot. Maybe somebody's feeling led to officially join our, our church or, or, or publicly come back to Christ after being away from Christ for a while. I don't know. I don't know what God's asking you to do this morning. But here's, here's one thing that I'm asking every single one of you to do. Is everybody hearing me on this? No, there's movement. No, there's a lot. Can you come back to me for just a second? And all of you out in internet world. We've got to team up and play to win. One of the ways that we're going to do that this fall is we're challenging every single person to, to really commit to what we do here on Sunday mornings and at least a minimum of one other smaller growth group every single week. These are groups that will study the Bible together. They will encourage each other. They will serve together. Some of these are going to be groups that you're already in, that you're familiar with. They're just going to kind of deepen a little bit more. Some of them are going to be brand new. We've got a place where you can sign up there today. We're going to extend that for a couple more weeks, those of you who aren't physically here today. But I invite you to go and, and, and try that because... only thing that matters in this life is how it affects eternity we've got to play to win we've got to play to win